come, 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 come back to Imperium with your regular hosts, myself, Mike, editor-in-chief of Imperium Press, and Joel, editor of the Firstness Journal, and just all-around right-wing Chad. So we actually have a, a special guest with us today. We've got... Who I think for most people doesn't really need an introduction, but for those that that do need the introduction, Thomas came up on the Sallow Forums, which is a a big sort of uh, right-wing womb of nations of interesting right-wing content, interesting nationalist thinkers, including Niccolo Soldo, he's the one that runs it, and Thomas quickly sort of garnered quite a bit of buzz on that platform to where he had a book published before he even realized somebody had collected his posts and put it out unauthorized on Amazon. So we're glad to welcome Thomas777 to the program. Very interesting guy. Very excited to talk to him. And you can catch all of our content on a variety of platforms. First and foremost, go to the imperiumpress.org website. You'll see a little link to iCast at the top right. That'll give you all of our content. You'll find us on YouTube, on Odyssey, Spotify, and a variety of other platforms as well. Thomas is going to have some releases come out later in the year on Imperium Press. Uh, We're just sort of waiting a little bit during the editing stage to announce that officially, but certainly we work together closely. Thomas is a good friend. Uh, We really appreciate his content he puts out on Telegram and on Twitter. I really enjoy the Telegram content because Telegram's a little bit better for long-form discussion, and uh, he seems to post a little bit more on there in terms of his uh, his video essays that he's got, so... Thomas777. On Telegram and Twitter. So, today... The topic that we've got on order is generally about mass democracy and how fascism sort of fits into that. So I'll just sort of introduce it here. When we think about liberalism, when we think about uh, from John Locke all the way to you know Black Lives Matter and whatnot, we give that a name and, that, and we call this liberalism. But in reality, it's actually more than one thing, and it sort of persists through, persists through time um, by sort of overtaking the last iteration of itself. So you can even go back, I mean, you started an arbitrary point. We can we could just say something like absolutism, which is pre-liberal, of course. Absolutism uh, eventually gets replaced by constitutional mar- monarchism. Uh, con- constitutional monarchism eventually yields to Jacobinism, or maybe what we could call this revolutionary liberalism. Revolutionary liberalism is replaced by bourgeois liberalism. From there we go to progressivism, which is its replacement. Progressivism is replaced by managerial bureaucracy, uh, which is replaced uh, in its turn, is in in the process of being replaced by a coalition of the ascendant, as it's been called. This is a term that came in during the Obama administration. And this coalition of the ascendant, this sort of like motley, you know, um, alliance between sort of unstable factors and factions is built on a foundation of what we could call mass democracy. And we'll, we'll, get, we'll unpack what that means, mass democracy, but it's sort of in some ways kind of self-explanatory. And mass democracy at its bottom has a kind of theological foundation. So, uh, And again, we'll, we'll sort of get into that. 
but I think a way to to sort of understand the stakes here and uh, how it's relevant to us is uh, to look at the idea that Carl Schmitt came up with that uh, liberals have no sense of the political um, and this is true but only if we take liberalism as this monolithic thing well only if we don't take mo uh, liberalism as this kind of like monolithic thing um, that's stretching from Locke to Black Lives Matter we can we can say that liberals don't have a sense of the political but it's only a particular kind of liberal that doesn't it's the liberalism that kind of takes itself seriously and is actually a coherent political philosophy um, which it has not been for some time now um, liberalism of the kind that we find today absolutely does understand the friend-enemy distinction but only insofar as it has now sort of transmuted itself into pure structural conflict um, it's, it's pretty and as far as that it's actually all friend-enemy distinction at least on the side of the ledger that really matters like the side that's telling you that you'd better get vaxxed if you want to remain a person essentially but on the other side of what Mark Brahman calls the Caducean, or uh, some other people have been calling the kosher sandwich, or this fake dichotomy. On the other side of that dichotomy, we still have something like coherent liberalism, which is only to say that we still have something like the total inability and unwillingness to secure or to wield power. Um, and this side, of course, as we all know, is just kept around as fake opposition. That's really all it does. That's its only raison d'etre. Um, and it, it's really kept around just to keep up the appearance of a pluralistic society that where you have options and, and choice and that democracy really matters. But in reality, I mean, this is just a mask. Liberalism's been dead for almost a century, and what replaced it is what we call mass democracy. So mass democracy is essentially a kind of counting of heads in lieu of war, right? Like, um, it's you get the whole trope of the, the two armies showing up on the battlefield and instead of fighting they do a head count and this is what democracy supposedly is to stave off structural conflict and violence and whatnot um, but the thing is when that head count sort of tells you the wrong thing when you get the result that certain uh, certain actors don't want as happened in 2020 you have to bring in the censor and the censor you know, does a recount or whatever. So when the people vote wrong, they either have to vote again until they get it right, or the censor has to tip the scales, or, uh, as is starting to happen and began in 2020, uh, along with this censorship, um, it breaks out into open war, civil war. So mass democracy, as we, if we understand it as this kind of like head count or else kind of thing, uh, it can't be thought of as denying the friend-enemy distinction. It's, it's entirely friend-enemy. But the thing is, mass democracy has this problem. It doesn't want the George Floyd riots. Uh, it doesn't want this open violence. This is bad for the appearance of peaceful pluralism that it's, uh, it needs to maintain in order to if effectively not be totalitarianism. Uh, and this violence, it looks like war, and mass democracy wants a head count in place of that war. Um, and that head count the you know essentially democracy itself the the idea of voting uh, it can only plausibly be sustained by equality so one man one vote requires that each man has to be equal at least in moral terms but the thing is moral terms are not enough when it comes to democracy 
if democracy is a truth-seeking mechanism, as people have sort of, as, as it's taken to be in general, um, each man has to be epistemically equal, which is just to say that mass democracy requires a denial of human biodiversity, um, which is just to say, effectively, that it requires the absence of any meaningful distinction between, um, not, not even just between peoples, but between individuals. It requires equality. Um, and so I, I was actually digging into uh, something here, and I found a really revealing response to The Bell Curve, the, the book The Bell Curve that we all know about. When it was published in 1994, uh, this Harvard sociologist by the name of Nathan Glazer wrote a revealing response. I would encourage everybody to look this up. Look up Nathan Glazer, Bell Curve, uh, New Republic is the magazine that it was written in. And I'll just kind of quote it here because I think it sort of sets the table for what we're going to talk about. Richard Wolheim and Isaiah Berlin have written, If I have a cake, and there are ten persons among whom I wish to divide it, then if I give exactly one-tenth to each, this will not call for justification, whereas if I depart from this principle of equal division, I am expected to produce a special reason. Hernstein and Murray have a very good special reason. Smarter people get more and properly deserve more. And if there are more of them in one group than another, so be it. Our society, our polity, our elites, according to Hernstein and Murray, live with an untruth that there is no good reason for this inequality, and therefore society is at fault, and we must try harder. I ask myself whether the untruth is not better for American society than the truth. So Glazer's just being a lot more honest here about these things than elites ever are, and especially as time goes on. He's saying that we need a sort of platonic noble lie to keep us from lapsing into fascism. Um, that there's a slippery slope from even just acknowledging human difference to, uh, you know, the unthinkable. And frankly, I mean, he's right. Mass democracy knows who the enemy is, and the enemy is believing in um, human difference, effectively. So mass democracy absolutely understands the friend-enemy distinction, uh, and the the enemy is most dangerously instantiated in the fascist, and so punching Nazis is not just something that's allowed, but it's actually a moral imperative. To not punch Nazis is actually to imperil the uh, democratic and liberal social order. You know, this is where we get silence is violence and whatnot. Um, so because our new categorical imperative is effectively uh, never again, um, this is something that is shared across the political spectrum from Antifa all the way to Jordan Peterson, who openly states as much. And everyone in between, however confused, is essentially taking that as their own categorical imperative too. So basically, the, uh, the heart, the beating heart of liberalism is anti-fascism. So I think with that, um, I'm actually going to throw it over to, uh, to Thomas to, to see if he wants to add anything here. Yeah, there's a few things. I mean, that was a an outstanding assessment, and there's a lot there. But first and foremost, <clears throat> one of the big problems with liberalism is uh, it, it really did, to your point, it, it really did sort of implement a bait and switch in terms of its own identity and its own philosophical lineage. Um, people put the point at which that occurred at 1968. I I really think it it, it began festering in the 30s and 40s. That's really when you started having 
people both branching off from, you know, orthodox Marxism and, and kind of dialectical materialism, but also people who, you know, had kind of previously, really from the era, of, um, you know, of the war between the states until until the then present, you know, had fallen back on natural law uh, arguments and claims to rationalize liberalism, you know, they kind of abandoned that. And they started really kind of replacing natural law with, with psychology and, you know, psychological mechanisms of explaining, you know, human action. You know, that's one of the reasons why it's really fascinating because people, um, this, it, this is not in vogue anymore at all, but um, the degree to which Foucault and Freud kind of came to inform the left, like people who viewed themselves as liberals, like even very like mainstream kind of square people, like were invoking that vernacular even when I was a kid, you know, like in the early 80s without even really realizing they were doing it. So, what liberalism did was it basically went from being this kind of God-centric, uh, you know, very abstract, kind of, you know, very legalistic, quite literally, sort of paradigm articulated by people like uh, Bentham and Locke to being, uh, you know, this kind of chaotic, personally anarchic sort of statement of the human experience that, you know, okay, man's basically, you know, something of a savage, but, you know, he's a self-contained savage, and, you know, if he if he's just left to pursue his own pleasures, and, you know, he essentially signs kind of like a, uh, what amounts to a non-aggression treaty with every other individual, then, you know, somehow we can, we can live in this utopian state. Like, now, of course, I mean, honestly, even if that was, even if that came to fruition, that would be somewhat nightmarish. I mean, that's what Aldous Huxley dropped in Brave New World. You know, this, uh, this kind of pointless, uh, this kind of pointless, um, entirely atomized civilization, you know, where the pursuit of pleasure is, is not just kind of the highest good, it's the only possible good, you know, it's the only possible, uh, source of fulfillment. I mean, it, it begs the question as to why that would even be desirable, but that basically, really until, uh, kind of the post-civil rights era, like, I believe that was the guiding sort of pole star of of what liberalism was like what what uh what succeeded that after the cold war is really is really somewhat strange and um that's when carl schmidt becomes most relevant because the destruction of uh the eastern Bloc, i mean it's implosion rather i mean it was, it was a combination of things external stressors of uh of open warfare and and subliminal warfare, the arms race, and propaganda, as well as internal frailties. But once once that challenge to the uh, you know to the liberal order was eradicated, and a true world society came to fruition, I mean, how do you how how do you manage a truly world society? I mean, the only really the only way the political culture, in any representative capacity, can adapt to that is by institutionalizing social tensions. Um, and literally, uh, you know, uh, literally, like, um, um, deepening these fault lines between people on, on grounds of race, on grounds of ethnos, on grounds of sectarian identity, and uh, any other iteration of identity that people are willing to resort to violence in order to defend or protect or augment, while at the same time declaring that, you know, these, you know, this, this, this basic kind of homogeneity must reign in order for peace to peace to, uh, um, exist, uh, you know, between people in this purported world polity. I mean, that doesn't, among other things, that doesn't make any sense. 
I mean, that, and that's really the issue you're seeing now. I, I think a lot of people who would have been sympathetic to the previous iteration of liberalism um, realize, you know, that you know that this 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 does not really have a center. It's not. It's not even that the center cannot hold. It's that there is no center, and that's that's sort of the way I read the state of the left these days. The state of the right is a totally different matter. I mean, related obviously, but that's if 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 you follow what I'm. If that made any sense, what I just dropped. Let's my interpretation of what the left is today and what liberalism is. I think an interesting thing to bring in here to build on what you're saying about this kind of mutation is that, um, you know, I've been, I know you're a, a Schumpeter fan, Thomas, and I've been doing a series on my YouTube channel lately reading Schumpeter's Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy. And Schumpeter makes the point that, you know, the beginning of the 20th century, the kind of uh, bourgeois society no longer really exists in the way that it did during the so-called like heroic age of capitalism in like the early 19th century, where by the time you get to the 20th century, you have these massive corporations that are owned by basically like absent investors. This was a point that it was probably made first explicitly by Veblen. Uh, yeah. But also, it's a point made by um, uh, Vladimir Lenin as well in his work that you get this like th these two aspects where production becomes socialized, um, and you know you, no one really has like direct relations to the people who own the company. The, they don't really have any kind of. Um, I mean, obviously, they're still small businesses, but generally speaking, the average worker works for this faceless corporation. But also, the people who actually own the company, not only are they like absent, but they don't really even give a shit about a particular company because they're buying and selling stocks all the time so like if you own a bunch of stock in a particular corporation what do you care like what position they're going to be in 20 30 years from now because you're probably going to buy and sell that stock 10 times over in the meantime if you're some big hedge fund or whatever um it just it just becomes as veblen says it like they just become experts in buying and selling and little else just moving stocks around a spreadsheet and this has a massive impact on the incentives because back in the 19th century you'll have like this you know charismatic CEO who owns all this stock in the company and has to have this long-term vision and you get these like titans of industry and shit like this whereas in the 20th century this becomes progressively liquidated and long-term planning is no longer really the purview of, of the corporation but it's instead it said needs to be supplied by the kind of emerging techno bureaucratic um, superstructure that isn't just embedded in the state but is like kind of embedded through this massive network of private or non-government not-for-profit institutions and so like every, today every big major corporation has an HR department has a public relations department and a series of other kind of roles that are staffed by essentially what would be the equivalent of bureaucrats um, and so yeah. you know in the early part of the 20th century you had these like two you, know, you had progressivism in American politics, or you had these like movements, fascist and socialist movements in Europe, um, kind of up against the classical liberals that were trying to defend, you know, the the capitalism of the 19th century and the interests of the bourgeois. But as the, as the 20th century goes on, I mean, these two classes no longer have a, like separate, distinct interests because the bourgeois kind of no longer exists in the same form they've become totally abstracted and now the world's major corporations are kind of have, have this bureaucracy 
that was previously the purview mainly of the state embedded within its very structure. There's a great book written by Masicato, The Entrepreneurial State, and she's kind of a Schumpeterian economist, and she talks about how essentially like all the great technological innovations of the post-war period in the United States, they were all facilitated by DOD research projects. And even today, like you look at like the National Science Foundation in the US, the biggest grant-giving um, institution in American uh, academia, and all of its money comes from the DOD. But like uh, you know, all all the great tech innovations, you can trace it all back to like DARPA projects and other kinds of DOD-funded projects. You look at like uh, biological engineering, whether you look at um, uh, you know, yeah, renewable energy technologies. I mean, like the list goes on. All like you know, Facebook, Google, etc. And they then basically coordinate to kind of bring venture capital in, you know, and to like convert it into a market mechanism as this secondary process. And so, like the whole process of capitalism has become bureaucratized. And so this I think is significant because now it's no longer necessary. I mean, if you want to figure out well, why does it seem like the conservative movement in the United States they almost has no support anymore. Like uh, all the big corporations are all like backing the left. It's because the bureaucracy has mutated. It no longer needs to exist in like this kind of antagoni- antagonistic per, uh, position relative to capital. But the two, kind of, these two modalities have amalgamated. They've totally fused with one another in a way that perhaps wasn't quite predicted by anyone. I mean, I mean, James Burnham kind of predicted to an extent the kind of the rise of the managerial class. Um, but I think he kind of saw it more in this kind of classical socialist model, um, whereas like. What the kind of the way in which capitalism has survived is is by adapting itself to the bureaucracy, I think, and like and the bureauc- allowing the bureaucracy to come inside it and and work it from within. So this offers many advantages. We're engaged in this culture war right now, where the state can be officially neutral, but then through embedding itself in all of these private institutions, the bureaucracy is still able to act in uh, a, a highly partisan fashion to kind of enforce its political will. And so it's like, on the one hand, they'll use liberal arguments, you know, about, you know, the private-public distinction when it suits them, but on the other hand, totally violate this distinction in order to achieve their strategic goals. And it's like this sick mutation where we get, like, the worst of both worlds into this kind of, uh, uh, kind of, like, destructive tendency. So I think, like, this strategic shift is kind of what I think what has kind of powered, like, the the kind of post-war ideological process and I think this related back to mass democracy before I throw it to Mike you know Condolis's point when he coins this term mass democracy is he coins it to kind of critique sociology and he says mass democracy it's distinguished from oligarchic liberalism of like the 19th century in the sense that you know oligarchic liberalism didn't really like it didn't extend the vote to everyone fundamentally i mean the vote like the franchise was only extended to all races and genders in the 20th century um but also mass democracy comes online at the same time you have mass media and um far more elaborate ideological matrices kind of like being installed in the public consciousness through a far more advanced academic system and so forth and so like the conditioning you know you have you know public relations propaganda techniques that have become far more like uh, institu- uh, industrialized and like the, the very production of political knowledge itself is like industrialized 
um, totally beyond the level of, you know, back in the 19th century, you could just start a newspaper and start disseminating propaganda in your town or something. I mean, this is almost unthinkable today to be able to set up a political faction. You need to have, like, industrial capacity. And so, at the same time that this is occurring, you get this new ideology of mass democracy whereby we have to kind of rationalize why everyone's getting the vote and why this is sacred because it's the legitimation ritual. While this, like, you know, this techno bureaucracy is setting itself up in the background, it needs some kind of legitimation process to kind of self-actualize and so it needs to have like this uh at the same it needs to be like what uh, Condolis calls a relativist universalism where ultimately if the democratic process is the space in which the values of this system are fundamentally legitimated because it can't appeal to any tradition it can't appeal to any kind of previous structure of valuations because to do so would be to in a sense uh like undermine the very legitimacy of the democratic ritual. The de democracy must be like the foundation, the, the kind of uh, omega point or the, the kind of origin point of social valuations and political valuations. Otherwise, if valuations come from some abstract notion or some prior notion of nationhood or tradition or religion or what have you, then this could be used as a rationalization for authoritarianism. Uh, like for asserting a value an evaluation over and above the kind of uh, democratic process itself, and so democracy has to be elevated and rationalized as the central point or the central locus. And the only way to do this is to become totally relativistic, where therefore all values are relativized by this process, but also universalistic because everyone's vote has to count equally. And so what this means is that we have to empty out each individual participant of all substance. They have to become totally vapid, um, pure functional units that could be repurposed um, in, you know, basically in, in kind of arbitrary ways. They have, like basically what, what our universality is, is ultimately our lack of substance, our lack of, of, of prior givenness. And so that's why the enemy, as you described, it has to be some kind of fascist boogeyman which asserts that there is substance to the nation or to the individual or to any kind of traditional process of determining um, you know, who we are or, or like uh, what our value should be and, and who should be in a kind of a, a position in the hierarchy relative to somebody else um, because this is ultimately creating inequality in values and this is fundamentally incompatible with democracy. As soon as you start introducing one inequality, if you, if you just keep like rationalizing away from that inequality, eventually you rationalize yourself out of mass democratic uh, ideology. And so this is why Condola says that sociology is the kind of er discipline of the 20th century political order because through its kind of importation of uh, cybernetics in particular but just syst systematic thinking itself it encourages the sociologist to kind of think of each individual unit in the political order as essentially substanceless they're pure functions and so you go back to like Durkheim even uh, in particular yeah. but you get this kind of functionalist way of thinking there's also there's a there's I, I I I don't want to interrupt you but there's a yeah there's a there's, there's a there's a school of thought that that related the problem of scale to warfare particularly strategic planning and nuclear war and how it's dehumanizing it's very much in line with that and that's fascinating but yeah go ahead I was kind of running to a close anyway so maybe just throw it to Mike yeah um I I think that this idea of relativized relative universalism or relativized universalism is, is kind of revealing here because it's such a blatant contradiction, obviously. Um, 
And this is something that you see in all of the iterations of liberalism that I mentioned at the beginning, you know, going from absolutism through into liberalism and, you know, through bourgeois liberalism and all the other iterations up to where we are now with mass democracy and this sort of coalition of the ascendant. At every stage, it basically, it runs up against a kind of like incoherence um, that it essentially enables it enables the next sort of overtaking iteration to supersede it, right? Like, it's it's an inherently supersessionist um, theological complex at its bo- at bottom, right? Yeah, um, that's Carl Schmitt. I mean, as you know, and it's, I mean, that was Schmitt's whole point. Schmitt's whole point was that, look, if you're going to abandon national, natural law, if you're going to just arbitrarily assign, you know, valorize certain principles or, or declare certain values, secular values to be sacrosanct, you're going to be constantly, you're going to be constantly forced to, uh, you know, to 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 eradicate other modes of social existence in order to make those values be realized in the political sphere, and it's not going to make any sense. So you're going to be left with things like declarations, like, well, you know, slavery is an unfathomable evil, but abortion is a right, or you know, the military draft is immoral, but you know, mass incarceration makes man better because then we can all live peaceably. Yeah. I mean, that, like these things can't be reconciled with one another. But uh, they don't have. But again, too, I mean, they don't have to be because the whole tyranny of values can be implemented because the man, or the man, or the party, or the executive who was asserting it has a bully pulpit by definition. Um, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't matter that it it, it has no actual center. Yeah. Um, I mean, eventually it unravels because people will no longer fight in order to preserve it, and um, it. Yeah. Uh, it's only it's only able to be held together by by top down pressure essentially. Yeah. Um, because it doesn't fit together like coherently in a philosophical sense in any way, and it and it's not just it's not just mass democracy. I mean, you know, even like the take the the steel man version of liberalism, which I guess would be what like kind of the what Guizzo, um, you know, thought of liberalism as being, which is basically a sort of like elitist liberalism or, or a, a um, in the, the oligarchic or bourgeois liberalism um, like liberals like David Hume and Tom, Thomas Jefferson I mean these these guys were they they were not woke by any stretch of the imagination they were originally not at all racial egalitarians they you know they endorsed slavery and whatnot right um, well there's yeah there's the Hobbesian issue too because I mean Hobbes uh, I mean, Hobbes was a genius in terms of the way he described, like, man's existential relationship to authority. You know, that's why Schmidt basically is a Hobbesian, but he kind of inverted Hobbes in a way not unlike uh, Marx inverted Hegel. And Hobbes' whole point was that, look, um, you know, if you're going to strip away, if you're going to strip away basically, like, the superstructure of nation, you know, which in Hobbes' mind, you know, Hobbes the rationalist looked at this as artificial, he said, you're going to, you know, you damn well better have some kind of, you know, overtly theological mandate for authority that essentially keeps people in a state of terror at transgressing against the law. You know what I mean? So basically, like, yeah, you can have the liberal, you can have a world society, but you can only have it with Leviathan, and you cannot have it with a sublimated Leviathan. It must be like an overt Leviathan that basically draws and quarters people in public when they transgress against it. Like, that's the trade-off. And if you're not willing to accept that, well, I mean, it's another question, obviously, if, you know, there can be any kind of enduring popular uh, sentiment in favor of that kind of regime. But even in just practical terms, like, it, it can't it can't sustain itself even day to day 
without that element of uh, awe and terror that accrues to a, a basically theological structure. And um, any government that is able to um, that is able to perform a therapeutic or a lawgiving function has a is perceived in, as theological in character. And I mean that's that's really the tie that binds like Schmidt and Hobbes, like different as they are. And that really was the strength of that's how liberalism was able to sustain itself. I mean, and that's that's how it you know people. That's one of the things. That's one of the things that's bizarre. Like you're talking about the. Um, <laughs> we were talking about the institutionalized hostility of post-liberalism. It's like, well, this presents a problem because take something like Black Lives Matter and like, what do we have here? We got a, we got a bunch of we've got a bunch of black people speaking English. It's the only language they speak. They're totally Western in their habits. They're Western in the foods they eat. They dress like Western white men. Um, their conceptual biases are Western. Their philosophical and ethical and moral demands are Western. Like they. You know, you, you can't, like, hate Whitey when you're quite literally his progeny. You know, like, it's it's not possible. It's totally self-defeating. Um, you know, not in, in, in physical, pragmatic terms, but also in, like, philosophical ones. You know, it's like, okay, like, Black Lives Matter, like, hates America because America's not living up to, like, the purported, you know, like, lofty values of white Western man's liberalism. Like, that's not... You, you cannot build a movement or a government on that. I mean, you can't even really build meaningful polemic on that. It's, uh... That's 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 beyond even an ordinary contradiction that is a common to utopian uh, philosophical schemes. Yeah, go ahead. I didn't I didn't mean to interrupt you with a tangent. Oh no, that's fine. Um, I I actually I, I guess I I, I want to kind of riff off of something that you talked about there because this is something that we talk about a lot on on the Imperium Cast is um, the theological dimensions of these political movements. Yeah. Um, and I think what you were saying about how you know. Schmidt basically points out that if you're not going to have like an overt sort of superstructure of the nation state that you have to have a kind of explicit theological dimension and I think that this is something that is actually mass democracy is kind of leading us to I mean you can see that sort of in um, you know the uh, with the, the George Floyd the, the response to the George Floyd thing with people like being baptized in his name and all this like sort of quasi theological stuff going on um, the problem is that mass democracy leads to is such overt structural conflict that you have to bring something in um, something to basically you know to, to tamp down the flames essentially right and what this is is the managerial bureaucracy and this is what people talk about when they talk about the adults in the room getting back into power, like Joe Biden and his administration, right? This is just the sort of managerial bureaucracy re, uh, reasserting its its hegemony over the political situation, right? And um, like mass democracy, effectively, it, what it does is it acts as a cover for this managerial bureaucracy. Uh, because democracy, like, obviously doesn't change anything, right? Like, with Brexit and Trump and whatnot, like, we all know this. Um, the civil service or the public administration or whatever you want to call it, these things kind of, ha they have way more power than the political party patronage. Um, the civil service being essentially a branch of what neo-reaction calls the cathedral or what people generally call the deep state. Um, now, like, the, the civil service is sort of considered by the man in the street to be essentially, like, impartial and scientific and whatnot. But in practice, it's really just the, ven it's the venue for stru structural conflict and power politics. You have to get hold of the deep state in order to actually wield power. Um, 
even mass democracy, mass democracy itself can hardly budget. But the thing is, mass democracy is really useful to this um, civil service or deep state or what. I'll just call it the deep state, just to trigger anybody that uh, doesn't like that term. Um, it's useful to the uh, to the deep state. Mass democracy is. It's a tool for the managerial bureaucracy. It definitely. And it's also, it's like Burnham and St. Francis said, too. It's like people, even people who pose it on nominal terms, I mean, they, they rely upon the public bureaucracy for information about the outside world. I mean, even in the information age, they do. And you're yeah. talking about a power and mold public opinion, and it's really, it, it, it's, it's almost godlike. I mean, quite literally. And not, I don't think I'm being hysterical or you know, resorting to ridiculous hyperbole when I say that. Like, it, um, that's really, really, it's, 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 it's really not precedented in, uh, I mean, that's, that's one of the few features of, of modern statecraft that is not, in fact, precedented. You know, like that, the, the power to instantaneously and completely, uh, shape conceptual horizons. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, well, what I find interesting about this managerial bureaucracy is godlike as it is, it wields mass democracy as a tool, but the problem is that the tool sort of has increasingly become the master as time goes on. So what I mean is that like democratic politics has for a long time now been sort of nothing more than a mask, just obscuring how the sausage really gets made, right? But the thing is the mask is 100% necessary to continuing to like crank out this like shitty sausage meat or whatever. Like all these things, like questioning the mask, denigrating the mask of democracy or even just pointing out that democracy is a mask and doesn't actually like your vote doesn't change anything all these things are an existential threat to the social order as it's come to be um i mean as we all know democracy doesn't exist and it can't exist this has been pointed out by people as far back as at least as far back as robert filmer where he in uh his um observations on aristotle basically says that like there only is monarchy that is the only political order that that there really is or like robert mickles with his iron law of oligarchy and whatnot right like what right. we have in terms of the managerial bureaucracy or the or the deep state is just oligarchy but it's oligarchy with a veneer of democracy and where it gets interesting is that democracy sort of has now sort of become a religious category like the fact that the will of the people and when I say the people, I mean like not even the majority some of the time, but often a sub, like special subset of the people. Uh, the fact that the will of this people has sort of a magical and transcendent significance, it's becoming harder to conceal that. And so you get this like mystical justification of this concealed deep state oligarchy, and that's getting giving rise to a real bona fide religious belief in democracy as a sort of god. But I think uh, it's um, a bit of a shift, though, because if you look at like Rousseau's notion of the will of the people, that ultimately is realized in fascism, like in its most pure sense of like, like, and that, and that's why we have like you know the Atlantic Council coming out and saying like populism is the greatest threat to democracy, which I mean surely this should be like oxymoronic, like how, how shouldn't these yeah. two terms mean the same thing? But no, because populism is fascism. If the will of the people actually expresses itself, they elect some kind of strongman to. Um, you know, uh, subordinate the oligarchy. So the will of the people doesn't mean jack shit if those people are racist or sexist or homophobic or the rest of it. So you have these like different modes. Like, so you, the original rationalization of democracy is this utilitarian, um, you know, J John Stuart Mill type set of arguments where individuals are making these rational 
rationally self-interested decisions and then through the amalgam like democracy is like a market basically and this like original interpretation through the amalgam of their choices some kind of like optimum outcome like emerges and then the next rationalization is this you know will of the people kind of comes more from rousseau that ultimately gets realized in populist and fascist kind of traditions socialist traditions even like in the original sense of the term Whereas like now what you have with this relativist universalism, which is why I brought up the notion of functionalism before, it's like perfect for the social engineer because it's getting people to identify with functions rather than substances. So like if you're, you know, you see these people on Twitter um, with like, you know, like they, them, hashtag be, like they have all these like, you know, cringe, you know, they'll have like the Jewish flag next to the gay rights flag next to the trans flag or something. And they have like all of these like uh, you know pieces of identity markers that they like assign to themselves, and like through this amalgam of identity markers, I become a, a kind of political agent or whatever. What this is is just like um, categories inside a social engineer's model. So it's like exactly. this is why like postmodernism is so like perfectly intertwined, like critical theory, poststructuralism, etc., because they just empty out the subject, render the subject totally vapid. But again, there's the, there's a universalism behind this relativism, which is that well, we can't question democracy, we can't question the the functional equality of each individual. Anyone like could just change their function. I could change my religion, change my gender, change my whatever, and take on a new function. And so the very idea that I can't do this, this is the enemy. And so democracy no longer actually means the will of the people, but it means like my like my functional or like universal functional relativism and like and so anyone who affirms this through affirming this insane woke ideology is affirming mass democracy and it's like latest form and I don't and it's quite effective because it creates this perfect scapegoat and if you have a scapegoat that you can institutionalize this enables you know this creates you know really good incentives if you're running a bureaucracy because then you just create a bureaucracy out of like smashing white males out of certain positions um, and so then you have this like rationalization sequence where you know you can engage in like individuals can engage in you know uh, basically bureaucratic warfare with one another and just rationalize it through this scapegoating mechanism and like ascend hierarchies and like centralized power in all these various ways it's incredibly effective which is why we have it like I um, Personally, I'm kind of a little more black-pilled on like, oh, well, it's just going to fall apart. I mean, I think ultimately our civilization is going to collapse, but it's very difficult to defeat this because it's it's actually really well-designed. Well, what's fascinating to me, and I mean, as you guys know, because I know both of you, you know, are kind of up on, are kind of hip to my jive. You know, the reason I write so much on the Cold War, man, it's not just because, of, you know, it's kind of a peculiar area of interest of mine, but the other day, I was, uh... I was watching the uh, debate from the 1980 presidential election, and you want to know what the huge issue there was? Like, Reagan was harping on the vulnerability gap because the Soviets had perfected the strategic capability basically to accomplish the first strike and, like, knock out, like, hardened American silos. So, like, basically, basically wherever you fell on any other issue, like, the deciding issue in 1980 was, like, how do you how are you going to vote on defense? It was, basically, it was basically a referendum on, like, can Carter, like, fight and win a nuclear war, or can he at least, like, prevent us from being, like, physically annihilated? So, I mean, basically, the state's only real function at base, I mean, it has, it, 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 there's ritual, there's, there's, um, there's traditions, 
there's cultural iterations that are perpetuated by, you know, official authorities, but it based, like, the structure of the modern state that we're talking about, the Westphalian state, it basically only exists to wage war and to mobilize to wage war. And um, without that function, like, why do we have the state? You know, like, what is its function? I mean, I'm begging the question deliberately, but it's like, you know, in the absence of, um, in, in the absence of the potential for total war, which evaporated in 1989, you know, what was the state's function? Oh, it must be social engineering. It must be to, you know, bring black people up to speed, or it must be to, you know, stop women from being oppressed, whatever that means. So, I mean, it's, it's not, there's two things going on here, I believe. There's the identitarian issue and that, you know, people are so atomized that uh, they fall back in this kind of narcissistic psychic defense mechanisms because their lives have no actual meaning, you know, and the only fulfillment available to them is hedonism, you know, so they take on these ridiculous identities. And I mean, obviously this is perpetuated by, by radicals who, uh, you know, view it as a kind of detonation strategy against the culture they hate. But so there's that aspect, but also it's, you know, even people within the within the permanent bureaucracy who might not be particularly politicized, like the state has no actual purpose outside of the war and peace paradigm. So it, just by default, it becomes an agent of social engineering. I mean, does that make any sense? Or does it seem like I'm reaching? No, it makes total sense because you have this like dichotomy, which I guess you could look at like Marxism versus like Gentile's uh, articulation of fascism. And the key distinction is between class collaboration and class antagonism. So in like Marxism, you have like the proletariat as revolutionary subject through class antagonism. Ultimately, the uh, socialism is achieved, whereas, you know, in fascism, ultimately the nation is the revolutionary subject and through collaboration, socialism is achieved. And I guess this distinction carries over even today into like where you have like the populist interpretation of a kind of classic notion of like the democratic will um, carrying this almost like spiritual quality or what have you where it's like America is supposed to be this place where all the classes and all the different groups have a place and we all work together to create like some kind of and you know it's bound up in like if you're a Trump voter you're probably concerned about the Chinese you're concerned about um, the you know radical Islam you're concerned about these like civilizational threats and like we need to develop class collaboration so that we can protect ourselves against these rival civilizations and their agendas versus like the class antagonistic framework obviously no longer like proletarian socialism but um now in these you know different categories like you know just like intersectional uh like milieu or whatever ultimately they're not concerned about external threats but they're concerned ultimately about white nationalism or racism or they're concerned about you know, internal antagonism. So it's like the state has two choices. Either it holds everyone together in collaboration against an external threat, or it like takes a side in like kind of an internal struggle um, and like sides with the kind of antagonism to like drive itself forward. But either way, it needs a scapegoat, basically. It's either an external or internal scapegoat. And that's like really the central distinction. So, yeah, I mean, no. yeah, at the end of the Cold War, yeah, we don't really have. A proper scapegoat, but you know, there were brief periods like you know, when 9 11 happened, all of a sudden, like Anglo American culture was able to kind of become more conservative, you know, for a few years because we were able to kind of coalesce around you know, Islamic terrorism as the central threat. And then when that started to dissipate, all of a sudden, like the identity politics of the 90s was able to kind of come back again. Um, so I mean, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty like straight up point. Yeah, I, I think it's 
Um, it's good to bring in the class collaboration versus class antagonism thing here. It sort of um, ties in a little bit with a point that's been made by uh, John Lukas or Lukacs. I don't know how. You, I think it's Lukas actually. How you yeah, I don't know either. I think it's Lucas. Uh, but yeah, it's um, the the idea that basically like uh, what we have today is effectively socialism of a sort. Um, and what Lucas is essentially saying is uh, that this is the case on an economic level with the the rise of the welfare state. But I think it could also be you could also look at it in the in the sense that Joel's saying as in, in terms of the actual um, we call it the social ontology of how things actually work. Uh, in the nation state, such as it, as it is today, with the collaboration versus antagonism, uh, we definitely have class antagonism, which is why it's so insane. Like you know, why, why Dinesh D'Souza and, and and company calling what we have fascism is is just so ridiculous. And the thing is, like the guys, like oh, these red gentile, it's like hard to imagine. Um, but anyway, and this is a point that's actually relevant to I think a lot of the the Nazbols. Uh, you know that hate capitalism and rightly so um and are sort of like you know they they want a kind of socialism and 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 i'm very sympathetic to that um but what we have actually is a kind of socialism and, and even the socialism of the kind that is being agitated for here so john lucas says literally he says we are all socialists now whether we call ourselves that or not and what he means is that capitalism as it's traditionally been understood, has been like dead in the West since at least the, the end of the Cold War, and probably for a lot longer than that. And what it's been replaced by is the welfare state. Yeah, um, definitely. With the vestiges of, you know, of, uh, of the welfare state kind of covering like what, what's now just basically an auction of public resources. Well, yeah, and, it's not even, yeah. I mean, it's not even volitional either, like in terms of, I mean, one of the, one of the big issues that nobody really addresses, I mean, there's a handful of kind of, like, futurist thinkers, like, like, Toffler used to write about this, I mean, back in the 60s, but, you know, the abolition of labor, that's a huge, that's a huge issue this century, and I mean, what do you, like, what exactly is the state going to do when, you know, there just is not, like, a need for human labor in the, in the overwhelming majority of productive activity? You know, I mean, it's like, you can't, yeah. it's like, by, by default, you create a socialist regime because you cannot employ these people. Yeah, go ahead. Nobody talks about the abolition of labor anymore. It's just, yeah. it's an issue that's completely dead now, which is like, it's crazy, right? It's been yeah. replaced by the welfare state, and, that, and that's why, right? Um, yeah. And the welfare state's now administered by the bureaucracy, and the bureaucracy is, of course, unaccountable. We have just an oligarchy. Um, but with the mask of democracy, as I mentioned before... Uh, in other words, what we have now is effectively a kind of state socialism. So, like, we, we are all socialists, as Lucas says. And the only question is, like, what kind of socialism are we going to have? Are we going to have an international socialism? Like, or has been effectively, that's what we've been working towards for, like, you know, half a century now. Um, or are we going to have a nationalist kind of socialism, which is, you know, obviously the sort of, like, political sat Satanism uh, effectively the political uh, equivalent of Satanism. And so hence the, na the objection to nationalism, it comes more clearly into focus, right? Like, we're all socialists, but the question is, like, it's now just a question of who whom, and this who whom question has now effectively overtaken the long-term planning. And I think this kind of ties in with um, 
with what Joel was saying earlier about uh, how the Schumpeter's idea that, like, you know, socialism is effectively inevitable, right? Like, liberalism now has to rely on parasitizing its own productive capacity in order to effectively just auction off assets for votes. And this is a point that Land, Nick Land makes in his Dark Enlightenment uh, essay, where he says that, like, and I'm going to sort of have to paraphrase from memory here, that competition, it's just a competition for who can essentially eat their way to prosperity first and leave nothing on the table for the other guy. Right? I, think, I think there's like a little bit of like a residual, um, like uh, particularly with land, obviously, there's like residual, like, uh, well, maybe not so residual, Austrian economic economics retardation it's like interspersed here as though like all (laughs) socialism is is just like giving resources to people like just like redistribution socialism is a form of production i mean i don't even like using the word socialism and capitalism anymore they they almost mean nothing they're so vague and have so many different interpretations but the point is is that the economy is planned like uh whether you look at the united states or china they're both planned just like one economy is planned in the Pentagon and at the Bilderberg Group, and the other economy is planned by the CCP or whatever, and you can just kind of argue, well, what are this kind of uh, structural incentives? What are the what's the strategy who, like of of these two different planning committees, and like what are they trying to achieve? And they're obviously trying to achieve different things. And so you could say, well, it seems as though in China, for example, they seem to have a far more like formalized method of planning. Um, whereas, like, if you look in the United States, it's a total, like, the, the basically, the, like, you know, uh, if you run a hedge fund, um, or, you know, you're like a George Soros or something, or you're like, uh, you know, one of these, like, oligarchs that have influence over American policy and, and like, the planning of the economy and so forth, you have, like, basically, you're in this kind of parasitical relationship to American interests. Because, um, like, ultimately, you don't give a shit. You're not actually embedded. Um, you know, there are some good. Uh, there are some. I want to say good. Maybe like it's a bit of an ex- a stretch, but there are obviously some people involved in the American economy who are kind of embedded in like the war machine hierarchy in the Pentagon, and they make decisions that actually make sense. Like they seed projects that actually create new technologies that are, you know, they're the ones that are like behind Elon Musk creating like space weapons and pretending like he's going to Mars, or they're the ones behind building like Tor browser or Bitcoin or, you know, Facebook or whatever. Um, All of the great innovations are kind of coming out of these guys because they're planning, okay, what do we strategically need to work out? This is what we're going to do. And then we're just going, once we like develop the technology up to the point in which it can like be integrated into the market, then we're going to go get like some CIA run law firm to kind of appoint to us a bunch of uh, venture capitalists. And then we're going to say, hey, invest in this, and like, you know, there's all this state investment, and boom, we we'll create some mega corporation, and this guy now owes us favors, so we know we own him, or whatever, like the, you know, the initial investors, or what have you. And it's like behind the scenes, everyone's scratching each other's back. We uh, create the illusion that we we have a free market capitalism, or whatever, but it's it's total BS. So like, but this system's effective because as Schumpeter points out, if you're a capitalist. Like you don't want to invest in something if you aren't sure that you're going to be able to get a monopoly or something like a like kind of monopolistic situation out of it because your money's insecure. Like if you're going to invest in a project like a, a startup, like you're going to want the government to come along and say, hey, we're going to grant you a monopoly and we have all here's all of like these 
this state-funded research that only you can have and here's here's all this support that we're going to here's like access to a bunch of politicians so they can create laws to prevent competitors from rising against you and so forth you're going to want to have your back scratched like this so that you know i'm going to put my capital here and it's actually going to accrue me returns as opposed to taking a risk throwing money at some random project that you have you know if you're a venture capitalist you don't have enough time to research everything you can invest in um and so you know the agency and the system has to come from somewhere the other you know as i was saying earlier as well if you're a corporation like they you know in the in the 80s when like you know they had this reaganomics bullshit and they were saying okay what we need to do to increase innovation is we need to lower taxes on large corporations and then they're going to reinvest that in research and development i'm going to get all this new re uh you know technological development as a result it didn't work you lower taxes on large corporations why would they go and like what they basically did was they would just buy a bunch of their own stock because they got their investors. What do they want? Do they want to wait 20 years for for you to invest the money, develop the technology, and eventually implement it and start making money, or just buy your own stock and make your stock price go up tomorrow so they can like make a quick buck? Like the incentive just isn't there for this long-term planning anywhere except the Pentagon. So that's why everything's coming out of it. Um, so this is just the reality we have when you have an industrialized system. It has to be run by some kind of bureaucracy. Whatever kind of window, like ideological dressing that they present it as, ultimately that's where the agency's organized. Uh, someone has to plan. Like if, if you're running, um, you know, if you're an executive at Goldman Sachs, obviously you plan what you're doing. You're not just responding to market incentives. You're trying to create market conditions and plan strategically how to create advantageous market conditions for yourself. Like there is no. Like the, there is no kind of like free market or anything like this. It doesn't exist. So this, this is what pisses me off about some of these like right wingers that like, uh, you know, they they take all these like liberal economic priors and like create these have this illusion that well, we had this like free market here where everything was being operated according to like market principles, mutual self interest, and bullshit like this. And then like a bunch of socialists come along and just like redistribute the resources to all these like victimary groups or whatever it's like you know obviously there is obviously there is um you know victimary groups that are kind of looting the state parasitically in exchange for their political allegiance or whatever but that doesn't really describe the economic system and how it really functions like in and of itself yeah, yeah no I, not at all and it's it's also too i mean it the whole <clears throat> The whole myth of the free market, I mean, it requires participants to basically, like, act in good faith and abide the same strictures. And it, nobody believes in, in the global free market except maybe the United States, the UK, and possibly Australia and New Zealand. Like, literally nobody thinks that way. Like, the French don't think that way. Germany doesn't think that way. Japan has never reported to be capitalist. Like, Japan literally, like, they, they openly, you know, award... Uh, subsidies like which firms they want to succeed you know i mean it's not an accident why like toyota and honda conquered the planet you know so it's basically um it's basically uh it, it, it's basically it's basically america and like american pundits like declaring that this thing exists you know this purported like global like free market structure you know by which you know we've done away with trade barriers and tariffs you know but like everyone else on the planet is has that, that conceptually completely alien to them like they don't even they don't even pretend their policymakers, their PR men, or, I mean, even in a place like the PRC, like the Politburo Standing Committee, which can kind of, like, declare whatever it wants, like, they don't even pretend that that is what is underway. So, I mean, it goes beyond, it's, it's beyond even a fiction. It, 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 it slides into the realm of delusion. I don't, I don't think I'm being too polemical in saying that. And, yeah, it's ridiculous, and it's not the, um, 
what is interesting about the planned economy, the planned econ, like the truly planned economy, like the Soviet Union had, um, I mean, the Soviet Union, it, I mean, it's got, in some ways it's a bad example because, it, you know, it always had these massive oil reserves and, you know, the fluctuations they were in kind of like intervened to save the day in a, in, in a couple of key, at a couple of key junctures, notably in the 30s and then again in the 70s, but it, uh, but the Soviet Union, I mean, one of the reasons they were so effective militarily, um, it's not just because their people are game fighters, you know, they have, they, they've had centuries of experience in, in strategic planning and things, you know, they had the benefit of men like Clausewitz, who, although not indigenous, you know, basically, you know, kind of adopted the culture and spent their kind of best years in Moscow in terms of their uh, command career. But, you know, the Soviet Union, war tech, to your point, like, it doesn't require the price mechanism in order to, in, in order to maximize efficiencies or, you know, determine what inputs it should abide in order to innovate. You know, it's like the, re the, re the reason why the Soviet Union, I mean, yeah, you could argue, like, nuance, oh, you know, Soviet strategic forces, they, they didn't have the, you know, the tight circular error probable that American rockets did or whatever. But, I mean, whatever means the rule, it doesn't really matter. Like, the point is that this idea that, like, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the spontaneous order of the price mechanism and like the pro, you know, the naked profit motive is, is simply what motivates man to do anything. And, you know, absent that, like, you know, we're all, we're all wallowing in, you know, in the misery of socialism or something, you know, where it's, it's, it's nonsense. And, um, it, uh, it also, I, I found secularists love to make that argument too. Like all these guys are before to be right wing. Like they will never, ever, ever point out that, you know, the problem with communism is that it's godless. You know, that it basically, like, characterizes man as an animal. You know, that it basically, it, it, it basically abolishes any, any potentiality of, like, higher form of life or cultural iteration, you know, than the most basic uh, modalities of, you know, kind of labor and sex and, you know, um, military violence. You know, they will never, like, acknowledge that. It's just like, oh, you know, it's, 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 it's evil because it, uh, it abolishes the sacred profit motive. I mean, and that, I think that's very, very telling. But forgive the uh, forgive the tangent. I just wanted to interject. No, I think that's really relevant, actually. Um, the the idea of you know basically like you know essentially offering a critique of the bourgeois liberal sort of conception of like you know the market as effectively the the solution to just about everything. Um, but I would come in here and defend uh, Nick Land as a sort of you know. Uh, peg to hang this whole idea of like bourgeois liberal free market ism on even though he's obviously something quite different he, he does have those liberal priors those like liberal economic priors but I, I would sort of defend this in a way by saying that like bourgeois liberalism um has like it's getting at something fundamental when it, it effectively is um lamenting the, the death of the market. Now, I don't agree with that. I, I think that the market is essentially something corrosive. But what it's getting at, effectively, is it, it's sort of like... It, um, it's, it's explaining... It's aware of why it lost, effectively, right? So the move from, like, bourgeois, like, oligarchic liberalism of, like, what used to be called Manchester liberalism in the 19th century to mass democracies always... It's, it's been characterized by, like, rationalization, a secularization... Um, as you mentioned, Thomas, and a bureaucratization, but above and beyond, it's above and beyond all that. It's been characterized by a sort of economic reform and a move toward the welfare state. And um, I think what we can, like, basically, what what they're lamenting, which is just it's 
and they were right to lose this battle. I mean, it was justified that they lost it. But what sort of distinguishes liberalism from mass democracy is kind of this hedonism, this hedonism that rests on a mass production and consumption uh, model, right? Like liberalism of the oligarchic kind, like the 19th century Manchester liberalism, it couldn't pony up the Gibbs, so it lost, right? And it doesn't matter that mass democracy basically eats its way to power or, or that it destroys the preconditions for the production that it relies on. What matters is that it's an algorithm for securing power here and now in the short term. Like, liberals offered freedom, freedom over equality, and the Dems, Democrats, like mass democracy offered gives me that, right? So it's, that's, they won, and that's why, right? It, it, it really, um, I think that for, like, the Milton Friedmans of the world to sort of, you know, wring their hands over this, is like it's misguided because obviously like the market is something that's destructive and like corrodes the social order but it's them kind of just realizing why in fact they they lost and the thing is that they deserve to lose like i'm not decrying the welfare state at all we definitely need uh like that that's an essential part of any functional social order and um it but it's missing something with the uh, with the rise of mass democracy, and as you pointed out, Thomas, what it's missing is a bona fide and genuine theological element, something that ties the entire social order together, like in the Christian world we had with the uh, the great chain of being, or what we had in the, in the pre-Christian world with the pretanium, or the shared hearth, uh, the center of the social order around which all of the the legitimate, like, inhabitants would gather around we don't really have that we just have this sort of like structural conflict and the conflict itself is the center which is obviously a kind of centrifugal force um and that force needs to be um countervailed by another force which is essentially the managerial bureaucracy trying to hold this unstable coalition together but i, I do think that like you know i'm not i'm not certainly not defending libertarianism but I think that they, they realize why they lost, and they're right to realize that is why they lost. They lost because, effectively, the welfare state was something superior on offer. Unfortunately, the who-whom question uh, is kind of going in the wrong direction, and that's, that's the problem, one of the problems that we're facing today. Yeah, definitely. I think that's insightful. And it's also the... Some of the people... You know, Werner uh, Sombart is a thinker that I drop a lot, and he's kind of ignored these days. Um, I mean, for obvious reasons, by people on the left and people on the right, particularly revisionists and people who, I mean, even people who aren't particularly right wing, but kind of want to have an objective understanding of national socialism. You know, Sombart's whole notion was that one of the part of the appeal of, of socialism, uh, you know, uh, and Sorel hinted at this, but Sombart really dealt with it a lot more explicitly. You know, he's like, when you're looking at Europe and European societies, um, you know, it's like they, their, their foundational heritage really is medieval. Um, I know some people claim that's conceptual bias of Spenglerians that, you know, like, oh, they, you know, they posit the West as kind of ossifying into, into a culture in a thousand AD, but I don't think it should be controversial, but Zomar's whole point was that, you know, the, the social fabric that was destroyed, uh, 
by things like the open lands doctrine, you know, by things like urbanization and just, you know, by, you know, kind of the, the proverbial, you know, death of God, as it were, like overstated as that is and cliches has become. That's what attracted a lot of people to socialism. It wasn't because, you know, they were cosmopolitan, you know, Jews or something, or because they shared those kinds of values or because, you know, they had some highly developed notion of class warfare and, you know, this, this sort of like mechanistic view of human affairs. Um, it was basically that, uh, you know, it was inextricably bound up with what they viewed as, as, as you know, as a loss of social capital and how to remedy that. And um, Catholic distributism that, uh, you know, particularly had a lot of ground in Spain with uh, a lot of guys who fought on the right, um, that, that, is, that is communitarian socialism in all but name. So, yeah, I, I, socialism shouldn't be a dirty word, and it, it, uh, it, it, it's, not, it's not reducible simply to Marxism or to, or to some kind of secularist uh, welfare statism at all. No, you're, I very much agree with you. You know, like fascism, ultimately, as we were saying before we started recording, like is a branch of socialism. I mean, like when like you get like Dinesh D'Souza's and other retards like this come out and say, you know, like, uh, you know, the national socialists were socialists or whatever, and then people kind of cringe it, at this. Like, he's not wrong. Yeah, they're actually right. Yeah, they're actually right because, um, you know, particularly like, like obviously Mussolini was explicitly a Marxist, but all of the great intellectuals of the fascist movement in Italy were like post-Marxist, basically. And even if yeah, you look like today Lenin, at Lenin praised Gentile, and uh, in his like critique of Marx, which is hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a great point. But I mean, even if you look at um, Stalin, like when Stalin comes to power and he basically rejects the doctrine of internationalism um, and, you know, reads, like basically affirms Russian nationalism, um, you know, uh, kind of re-embraces the Russian Orthodox Church to an extent and so forth. Once he makes all these moves, like he's functionally like pretty difficult to distinguish from other so-called fascist dictators in like uh you know other historical examples so if you look at like the so-called communist party of china today i mean are they reading marx or are they reading you know fascist thinkers from italy and germany in like the early 20th century and coming up with their policies i mean it's pretty clear hamilton i think yeah I mean, which definitely, yeah, to your point, I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely. They're not, they're not sitting around reading Karl Marx. Yeah, so I think ultimately, um, like when looking at this issue, it's like, you know, either we have we have socialism with this veneer of capitalism, which is basically, or we have, you know, it, it, we basically always have socialism. It's like either, either we have this veneer of capitalism, which means that you have a parasitical oligarchy um, that have no loyalty to the political order that exists in this informal exterior, uh, you know, relation to it, um, and and that don't they don't need to go down with the ship basically if they crash the whole thing, or you kind of formalize it and embed them in embed kind of uh, people that make the you know, that have agency in the system in some kind of like formal party structure, and then they do go down with the ship if they fuck up and they have to like organize themselves into a formal hierarchy like if you sit down with president g and you're a and you're a diplomat from a foreign nation or a leader of a foreign nation you know you're talking to someone who makes the fucking decisions if you sit down with joe biden i mean what's the point 
You know, if you yeah, want to exactly. if you want to get something done, you should go to the Bilderberg meeting or some shit like this. Like you're gonna have more, you're gonna get more from this or like well, that, give, yeah, call Goldman a, Sachs or something. That's what's fascinating. Like John Mearsheimer, that was one of his more recent books. Uh, he makes that point. He's like, look, he's like, you know, you can say that Russia or China are not particularly free societies, but they actually are. They actually are quite transparent, and like America is not at all. Like Vladimir Putin actually is the president of Russia. Like the Politburo Standing Committee, like controls China. Like the Chinese and the Russians, or and the Japanese, the Koreans, for that matter, they don't hire what amounts to you know, like you know, PR men and actors, you know, to pretend to be the government. Meanwhile, yeah, like putting executive decisionism in the hands of Wall Street firms and um, policy wonks and and um, you know, and and, and deep state bureaucrats who kind of have insinuated themselves at, 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 at decisional choke points into having wielding grossly disproportionate power. Like, America is about the most opaque system that has ever existed in a modern state. Like, that's why it's ridiculous people talk about transparency in this regime. It's like, um, America is a lot of things transparent that is not. It is the opposite. All they mean by transparency is allowing American journalists to spread propaganda in your country, yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, and again, like, you, if you love or hate Russia, that, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's not even a question of the value judgment, like how can you say Russia is not transparent? Like, it, how is it mysterious? Like, who controls Russia? Like, it's it's not. There's nothing, there's nothing at all opaque about that. Um, well, I mean, that's that's part of what it owes to like the absurdity to America's political culture. Like, I like Obama literally is this random guy. I mean, it'd be one thing if like Obama was kind of like this Jesse Jackson type political hack who you know for the last thirty years was kind of like showing up and insinuating himself. Into, into the public consciousness. Like, he literally was a random guy. I mean, <laughs> like, I think that, like, America supposedly got this, like, um, supposedly got this informed electorate in relative terms. I mean, I, I don't think even people of a charitable view of America believe that the average voter is, is, is you know, informed in any objective capacity, but it's like you, um, it's, it's, it's like you might as well, like, like running Obama for president, I mean, that, so you might as well run like Sean Penn or like you know, uh, like a random like NF NHL wingman like for press. Like, why? It's like a, it's like why why are you running this random guy and like how can this my has anyone like, has anyone actually coined? Around? Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say something retarded. That's all. I was just, just gonna say that there's like, has anybody coined the phrase like rule by actor or something like that? I, I don't, I don't think so. It's like rule by actors, well, it's just like rule by randos. Like, I, that's why I get pissed at people when they're like, oh, Obama's like a Chicago politician. It's like, dude, he's not. He's literally this random guy from Hawaii. You know, like, he's the equivalent of like some nerdy Asian guy. Got randomly drawn out of a hat. Like, he's like, okay, you know, when he got to Chicago, he's like, okay, now I'm a community activist. I guess I'm black. You know, and then on the national stage, it's like, he... He, he he got his Senate seat really kind of by splendid accident because Jack Ryan, not to be confused with the fictional Tom Clancy character, um, he was a shoo-in for the the Senate seat that Obama contested. He he uh, he got savage in media owing to this kind of messy divorce, um, and some of his extracurricular you know womanizing activities that you know came out in media. But it uh I um. I pointed out to people again and again, it's like, look, I mean, even if you're like a woke ideologue, I mean, even if you really, really ascribe to that kind of thing, like, not only is Obama not black, he's literally a random guy from Hawaii. You know, it's, it's like you cannot, you cannot build a, you cannot, you cannot build a, uh, 
a, a redemption mythology around this guy who's the son of an African immigrant and an Irish woman who grew up in Asia. You know, like that's not that doesn't work. And even if you could, it's like, well, okay, like is uh the guy never actually held a job. You know, he 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 had a uh, he had a four year tenure in the Senate, um, and that's it. I mean, it's there's there's a there's a basic there's, there's a basic lack of any meaningful depth. I guess is what I'm getting at. So, like, in addition to a lack of transparency, it's like there's a, there's a deliberate resistance to uh, to a to to any kind of depth of narrative, even. And it's really bizarre because other countries, like even countries where like the population is basically like illiterate, like I don't think they would just kind of accept that. Like they'd require something like that that at least had some kind of like mythology behind it that was more historically relatable than than what is presented in America. Like it's it's bizarre. But isn't that the mythology of America? Like Obama, nobody knows who he is, and then he rises through the ranks at this like breakneck speed to become president of the United States. The thing is, it's it's all mythology, right? And this is like, I mean, you guys are right to point out that it's completely opaque, and that there's no more opaque country in the world at the, at this time anyway than America is. Um, and it's why I think formalism is something that actually does need to be taken seriously. And a lot of people sort of, um, you know, they have a bit of an issue with formalism because it's sort of taken to be like, well, let's just let's just formalize like who's in charge right now and formalize ourselves getting like curb stomped forever, and that'll be the that'll be the solution. Well, that's that's not what formalism brings to the table, right? Like what formalism, and I mean obviously obviously you don't want to formalize that, but in, in agitating for formalism, what you're doing effectively is taking away a kind of weapon that this mask that I've been talking about, that the the um, you know managerial bureaucracy uses to essentially close off any possibility of an alternative, right? Because it's the it's the opaqueness is a weapon in the arsenal of this bureaucracy, and what formalism sort of offers is well, it, it sort of takes that away. And, uh, you know, this is something that I've, I've explained on a, a number of podcasts because somehow I, I, I guess I've been uh, come to be associated with a neo-reactionary perspective because that's where I came out of, I guess. Um, and formalism is obviously big in those circles, uh, but it's something that I think needs to be properly understood. And it, it's something, it, it's not a solution. But even if we related this to the Obama example, like if Obama was like a dictator of America, he probably would have like made a lot of decisions that were much better than the ones he ended up having to make because he had to like suck the dick of all these like huge hedge funds and like go to these like secret meetings, you know, whatever, and like meet with like the real oligarchs who run the show and like, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that or whatever. So if you, but, but I'm sure, like, I mean, you know, I'm not saying he's, like, a great guy or whatever, but, like, he probably would have, like, some of that shit that he actually run on, he probably would have actually, like, done, like, half of it, like, other than, like, basically none of it, you know? Yeah, if he actually, exactly. Because that's the key problem with not having formal leader. It's, like, how, how are we supposed to know what the fuck we're, we're like, supposed to do? Because well, we don't yeah, have anyone to, have... like, ultimately appeal to and say, okay, well, that guy's in charge. He said we do this. And, like, we, at least we have some clarity. At least we have some kind of a set of standards to hold other people to the sad thing about the Trump thing was like you know it seemed like when he did finally try and like actually lead he got fucked you know at every turn yeah. um, and, and that was I think what the appeal was ultimately was like yeah imagine a president is actually a president like well this is what formalism offers right it, it offers clarity 
and it dispels the mythology, this fake mythology of democracy, right? Like, you can't formalize democracy because it isn't a thing, right? Like, you know, take Obama, like, with his, uh, what, what you're saying about how he would have made better decisions if he had had, like, a formal actual seat of power, and that's absolutely true. And then contrast him with someone like Narendra Modi in India of the, the Nationalist Party, where this guy is, he actually holds all the credit lines. He, he, he effectively can cut off any company from credit at, a, at the stroke of a pen, right? Because he's, he's formally in charge. And if that's not something that, you know, is, you know, given to the executive in, say, like, you know, the American um, notion of division of, of powers, then formalize that. And then formally, you can say, well, it's actually an oligarchic sort of like banking cartel. Um, but if it's formalized, we know we know who is in charge. But the problem with that is uh, that the American system, it, it's so antagonistic. There's no class uh, collaboration, so antagonistic to um, its constituent elements that you have to, it has to be obscure. It has to be but, opaque. But that's the thing. Else. I don't think the oligarchic banking cartel are in charge in the sense that they couldn't rule properly. Like if they were compelled to, they wouldn't actually know how. No. So if you formalized power and you, and you really tried to find a leader, you would end up finding a leader that would fuck those guys over and like whip them around like Putin did when he came to power in Russia or like you'd ultimately get someone who disciplines these people. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, I believe that's what underlay the Watergate coup. Um, and uh, that's what's fascinating me too about like the, the kind of sheepishness of the American voter. It's like they, any, any president who acts like an Article II executive, you know, they, they respond to this propaganda like, oh, you know, we're, we're wallowing under a tyrant. Yet they literally will put the power of life and death like in the hands of the judiciary. And it's like, okay, we got nine judges who cannot be removed and serve for life. And uh, they they literally they they literally redefine marriage and like the fundamentals of human existence like at the stroke of a pen like that's no problem, but Donald Trump saying he wants to reduce immigration it's like you know that that's grounds to take to the streets that you know and 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 cry havoc that we're being subjected to tyranny like it's it's insane like who the fuck thinks that way? It's funny too because like the great presidents in American history that are like the household names you know whether you look at like a Jefferson who basically didn't give a shit what the Supreme Court said and said, you know, who the hell are you to tell me what to do? I'm the president. And just did what he wanted, tried to have them killed, I think, multiple times. Or um, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, who just, like, suspends habeas corpus and goes, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I'm the president. I either, like, get on board or I'm going to shoot you. Like, th these are the presidents that are held as, like, the great American presidents, you know. Even, like, FDR is, like, held up by leftists as one of the great presidents. And, I mean, even if you don't like him, you have to admit he is, like, a... You know, yeah, a great statesman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like you know, he completely made a mockery, obviously, of of the Constitution um, in many ways. And like you know, any this again disciplined the Supreme Court. And so it's like funny whenever you do get one of these like actual dictatorial presidents who put their foot down, in a sense, they're they're loved. You're remembered by history as the, the great men of of you know American history. Whereas you know. I guess the tragedy, like you bring up Nixon and, and Trump, but like two guys were, I think Nixon far more competent, obviously far greater president than Trump, but two guys who tried to do something that went against the grain and like uh, they get fucked for it and they're, held, and they're scapegoated by the, uh, 
by American culture as like the two mistakes or whatever of like the post-war electoral system when really there were the two highlights in my view. Well, yeah, I mean, these, like I said, like it's uh, it's not just um, it's not just uh, I mean the the public is culpable too. I mean, I realize the I realize the voters don't don't they don't they certainly don't generate public opinion certainly does not originate with them nor do they have any meaningful control over policy but they could vote with their feet and withdraw their consent and the fact that they're the fact that they're okay with men like john mccain or mitt romney you know like literally being senators for life and you know enjoying these parasit these decades-long parasitic careers you know they're okay with people like fucking elaine kagan on the supreme court you know that that's fine with them but you know donald trump like makes them makes them nervous about their liberty. I mean, that's, that's ass, that's beyond asinine. I mean, that's, that, that's kind of an evil by omission. It's, uh, it's an evil by way of staggering fucking stupidity. I mean, that's, you know, um, it's not just a cliche when, uh, it's, it's dropped that, you know, people generally, I mean, get the government they deserve. I mean, like, Americans, Americans have shown themselves again and again truly be, like, natural slaves. Like, I really believe that. I'm not just being, um, I'm not just trying to forward controversy or, or, or drop polemical stuff like it's, it's absurd like anybody anybody who tolerates dictatorship by judiciary like it's not capable of liberty like they're just not nobody would tolerate that but America the Supreme Court is very interesting as well because I mean you have this dichotomy in I guess you know all western jurisprudence between like formalism and realism I guess like would be like the best names to give for it yeah yeah and and like so you have like the formalism which is usually the right wing is where and then the realism of the left and so like the left uses realism to reinterpret the law then the right just comes along and formalizes their reinterpretation and then the left uses their realism to reinterpret and the right formalize well we got to like make this new progressive interpretation formal and like <laughs> and it's just like a total fucking farce really like it's like it's like designed um, so that like only one side is able to actually have any agency, and the other side just yeah. exists purely to like legitimate. Um, and and like it's, I mean, I don't understand. Like, what well, I, I think you know, Jepson is an interesting point because I mean, you have conservatives crapping on about like you know the Constitution, and Thomas Jefferson wrote it, and it's like so all, all the kind of talking points that you hear. Thomas Jefferson thought the Supreme Court was a total mistake and like wanted yeah. to abolish it, you know. So it's it's kind of like no no one actually thinks about this. Like the the Supreme no. Court, it, it either either like it really should put a crown on. It should be one person that should have a crown, in my view. Well, but also, yeah, well, and it's also too if you're gonna have look if you're gonna have the equivalent of a Politburo or something, it's like okay, like just make it a Politburo. Or say that, like, you know, this is some, like, rabbinic elite, you know, and they, they just interpret, like, the sacred, you know, this sacred text. Like, don't pretend, like, this is some legal proceeding and that the law is, like, the sacred science or something. Or that, you know, we need Elaine Kagan and frickin', uh, Roberts to, you know, like, like, divinate, like, you know, the magical, like, the, like, the magical idiosyncratic and esoteric truth, like, contained in, you know, the, the words of the law that, like, it loses the common man, you know, I mean, that's, that's uh that's fucking voodoo and that's um and it's uh it, it it it's an absurd narrative you know i mean don't like it's don't don't pretend that we're engaged in jurisprudence here or if you're going to pretend that it's like okay at least at least making the fiction you're drawing upon a natural law foundation don't declare that like well the supreme court is sovereign because it's the supreme court and precedent is sacrosanct because it's precedent 
I mean, that's it. Really, it literally is that circular. Like there is there is no creature more primitive of intellect than an American judge. Um, that's not just my. Uh, that's not just me being better in old age about the practice of law. Like it, it really is incredible the way these people think and their poverty of not just imagination but intellect. Um, the, un the only really way, in my view, to make it coherent though would be to have, like, you would need to have like a. The tradition needs to be living. I mean, maybe this is Catholic posting or something, but I don't think you can just keep returning to the sacred text and like, uh, without you know yourself engaging in a kind of violence on the text. So you you need to. I mean, you just like you need a, a a legal pope of some kind, which is why I said you need to put a crown on their head because ultimately there is no like there like. They, if they if they just have this indiscriminate power to just reinterpret the thing, they're going to use it. So just acknowledge it and say, well, at least let's try and make this coherent so that we don't we can like stop pretending like they're engaging in this like abstract formal procedure that like if, that is like epistemically sound or something, and just well, like a, and just yeah. make a fucking decision and then we'll and then and then we'll compare it to like your discretion. Well, yeah. I mean, there is in fact there is in fact a racial dimension to this too. I mean, people get upset when I drop this. I mean, but it's you know you, you might notice that like Jews don't have kings. Like rabbinic Judaism has rabbis and judges. It's like okay, well that's what we have. You know, we we live in terror of a king or anybody who acts like a king because that's tyranny. So no, we have, we have you know we have a sacred panel of rabbinic judges who you know interpret uh, interpret <laughs> the law for for the little people. I mean, that's not that's not accidental. You know, that's why <clears throat> one thing I do agree with E. Michael Jones about, um, you know, I'm very much a, I'm very much a Presbyterian, but uh, I, I, um, Jones is a guy I take very seriously. When Jones talks about America being, ba if you want to understand American, like, race and ethnic politics, it's basically sectarian in the quarters of power, if you, especially the 20th century, but even going back probably to the immediate era after the war between the states. If you understand American policy battles, it's a battle between Catholics, Protestants, and Jews. And if you want to understand like what the state of that battle is, you look at the makeup of the Supreme Court. You might notice that Protestants have been unceremoniously kicked off the Supreme Court. Like there's not a single one on the Supreme Court anymore. It's Catholics and Jews like arguing over uh, kind of the minutia of this law that's not based on anything. And then there's like a couple of token like ethnic judges. Um, but that that's what it is. Um, and uh. Obviously, like American anti-Catholicism is another issue, and how Catholics in America have reconciled themselves to that and kind of sold out. I mean, I, that that's a whole other issue, but the um, it it, it is not accidental that basically there is a Jewish uh, a, a, a Jewish structure of uh, of high political authority in America. I mean, and it's it's not it's not just me like seeing a pattern that I want to own some anti-Semitism or something. I think this should be very clear to anybody who's up on um the state of uh. The, you know the real state of America's um, ethnic cleft. It's not. It's 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 not. It's not Black Lives Matter. It's Catholic, Protestants, and Jews um, jockeying for power and working one another with basically like uh, non-white people as their proxy warriors. But, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that it's it definitely is a, a theological question at the end of the day, um, and this ties in with uh, what we talked about on the last podcast with the. There's basically two kinds of formalism. There's the formalism that we talked about last time, which is effectively a kind of deism that wants to banish God from the world, and um, you know, essentially, that's a constitutional, constitutionalist kind of formalism. And then the formalism that basically is a clarity over who actually rules 
And uh, there's two. The, the former is something that we don't want, and the latter is something that we do. But I want to kind of bring this discussion, like start drawing it to a close here. And I think that we can do that in the form of the, like, you know, what we've been talking about essentially, which is the dictatorial president in the form of FDR or Lincoln or Jefferson um, and the king and uh, all these, you know, these sort of monarchical uh, figures are ultimately reflections of something uh, very ancient. It's the Aryan house father. And this is essentially the only form of uh, sovereignty that has ever existed for us as a people. And the problem being that this is something, this, this Aryan house father is something very dangerous to the, the, the current sort of rule by judges, uh, religious milieu. And because what it, what it does is it ultimately generates a kind of political center. And this is the thing that liberalism opposes above and beyond everything else, because liberalism is and always has been center phobic, what Roger Scruton calls oikophobic. A fear of the fear of what's familiar, what, a fear of home. Liberalism has to look far afield to like what's marginal and obscure and foreign to find ultimate meaning, which is why it hates everything that's normal and healthy. And this means that anything that that it places at the center of its own value system can't last. And so, hence, liberalism is a history of what Freud called the narcissism of small differences. It's, it's a history of of radical radically and violently opposing whatever came yesterday, what was he hegemonic and proximate to us. So uh, the only thing that can prove stable for liberalism is essentially the absence of value. So you look at the actual content of liberalism and it's almost entirely negative. You've got the individual, which is the person sort of set off from the group. You've got freedom and tolerance and openness and diversity and all these things. They're just absence of values. Like freedom is just the absence of constraint. Tolerance is just the absence of decision and so on and so forth. Even equality, the sort of linchpin of like mass democracy, is just the absence of any distinction between peoples. And so liberalism can't have a center. Um, it has to define itself in opposition to the other, which is, uh, it's a differential ontological move, which is it, the only sort of ontology that makes sense. The problem being that liberalism actually has a problem with distinction. Um, and so it's got this kind of incoherent uh, differential ontological distinction between itself and the other. Um, but still, it, it still defines itself in terms of what it opposes. Um, and, and in order to do this, though, it sort of defines itself in opposition to an absolute enemy, which is effectively a liberal fascism. And so fascism actually provides liberalism with its unifying principle. And so hence, liberalism has to kind of dredge up this ideology that, like... Um, at least formally in terms of or nominally shall we say it hasn't been in power anywhere for three quarters of a century even if it exists in all but in name in China and Russia right um, it has to sort of you know dredge up this fascist ideology because without it liberalism or mass democracy and this whole shebang kind of falls apart at the seams the coalition is too unstable um, liberalism exploits its own social order too parasitically it needs an enemy and that's us it sure as hell isn't communism or socialism. We are the ones that give it meaning. We give it the fundamental stakes uh, of, of its own worldview and that consists in staving off tyranny, spreading its kind of universalist aids or like what it calls democracy as far and wide as possible. And basically, to bring it back to the start, it punching Nazis is at the, at the center of liberalism. So what I want to do here is I, I just want to throw it over to Thomas 
Um, maybe you can give us a, a sort of extended thoughts about the discussion and what we've been talking about. And then after, uh, after that, I'll throw it over to Joel, and Joel can uh, give us some parting words. Yeah, no, I, I think, uh, I mean, I think we covered a lot of ground here. I mean, the thing I'm constantly trying to convey to people, particularly the, the people, I, I mean, who are, who are black-pilled, and I, it, it's really disconcerting to me, especially when I run across young people who seem to have internalized that, you know, people really lack the conceptual tools to really, to really think historically. Like, that, that's not, that's not me being a cantankerous old guy, and it's not, um, it's not, uh, it's not me being some kind of a feat, like intellectual snob. Um, to your point, you know, really the, the enemy, really all he has is, is, a, is an oppositional subculture. You know, there's nothing positive about it in, in, in value terms, but there's also nothing proactive about it. It actually doesn't have a structure other than what it opposes, you know, and what it, and it's, it's, um, it's persecutory delusions and it's ideas about, um, oppressors and victims and remedial justice, you know, needing to be afforded to the latter, um, while punishing the former. And, um, that's a lot of things, all of them disturbing and, uh, none of them uh, admirable, but it it also is an extraordinarily frail political culture. And again, it um a lot of this stuff um as a lot of this the this found the founding mythology of this stuff, your point about, you know, us being almost a full century removed from fascism, actual fascism and national socialism, I mean you know, the this, this entire system actually really is premised on Nuremberg and the experience that gave rise to that um, to that uh, political, legal, moral structure. Um, as that recedes into historical memory and as America becomes less Western and less white, a silver lining of that is that this will no longer have currency. You know, if you're if you try and drop woke ideology on people from Africa, people from Latin America, people from the Middle East, like not only will they find it offensive to their uh, kind of provincial worldview, they won't even understand what you're talking about. You know, they're just not going to be susceptible to these conceptual biases. Like this is very much a, you know, I'm, it, fortunate for better or worse, it's very much something that manifests in the minds of like the degenerate elements of our people. And, um, the sooner we shed them from our uh, from our uh, blood community, the better. And uh, thankfully, they don't really reproduce themselves, and uh, they're not really capable of bearing culture anyway. So even if they were physically reproducing, it wouldn't really matter. Um, I mean, that's this is a point to make a lot. I'm sure people are tired of hearing me repeat myself, but that that's really all I'd have to add. Well, I think you made a good point about, you know, the very uh, nosy aspect of ruled by judges, but obviously we're also ruled by money changes in a certain sense yeah. as well. And, um, you know, I think looking at like the kind of moral structure of society, I, you know, you said you're a Presbyterian. I, I recently converted to Catholicism. Um, well, I was raised in the Protestant church and I found myself reading Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies the other day and I don't think I can really talk about what he said in that book on YouTube uh, but it's like unfathomably based. Put it this way, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think Uncle Adolf thought much higher of the Jews than uh, 
Mon Luther Day. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it really does strike me that you know the the situation that we're in right now seems to be um, a judgment and wrath upon our civilization that is well deserved. Um, yeah. And uh, the the reality of, of of the structure of our rule of, of the rule in our society being so perverted, the chickens have to come home to roost on that in a way that is going to be, I think, quite painful. Um, but yeah, in terms of like what you were saying about ultimately the the enemy, all they can do is negate us. You know, we, there is no actual affirmation in their worldview. Um, it's just like anti-Christian, anti-fascist, anti-authoritarian, just anti a whole bunch of just like anti-white, anti anti all these things. It's not pro anything really. Um, and so it has to burn itself out just by virtue of, of that it's, it is fundamentally parasitical uh, upon uh, a prior affirmation. But ultimately, we, in this movement, do affirm.